uh, I want you to imagine a scenario with me. Just imagine this were true. It's kind of morbid. It's completely made up, but humor me. I want you to imagine, now most of you have known me for, for a long time now, but, and you know Rachel, my wife, I want you to imagine that I was married previously. And the gal I was married to, she was, she was not very good to me. She had these super high expectations I could never uh, live up to. And she just berated me when I didn't um, live up to them. And then, lo and behold, she, she died. She's actually buried out here in our cemetery, even though I didn't live here back then. After a, a, an appropriate amount of time of mourning, I met Rachel, we fell in love, we got married, and now you know us. And so that's a little bit of my made-up background. Now I want you to imagine that you hear a rumor about me, that someone tells you, you know, your, your pastor, I, he goes out to the cemetery a couple nights a week, and he sleeps by his dead wife. Like he leaves Rachel at home alone, and he goes out there and sleeps with his dead wife. And you think, well, you know how rumors are. Because you're my friend, and you would never just go talk to someone else about that. You would come straight to me, right? And you say, hey, Pastor Matt, I've just heard this. I've heard this rumor, so I just want you to know it's going around out there that you still sleep with your dead wife. And I go, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I still love Rachel. And I'm not leaving Rachel, but... Sometimes I miss the old gal, even though she was terrible to me. And so I actually had the city build me, dig me a little basement bunk out there. And so I just climbed down in there just, just two or three nights a week. And, you know, Rachel didn't really like it, but she'll get over it. And that way I can kind of be with, what would you think if that was, if that was you'd think I was crackers, wouldn't you? I mean, that's bananas. You wouldn't think I was being devoted to Rachel. You wouldn't think I was being a good spouse to Rachel. You'd think I was nuts, and you'd be right. Well, today in the book of Romans, you know what Paul's going to tell the Romans their problem is? Basically, he's going to say, I know what some of your problem is there in the church in Rome. You still hang out with a spouse you used to be married to and one of you's dead. It's basically what he says. And you know what? It's not an uncommon phenomenon in Christianity at all. In fact, it's incredibly common. In fact, I think in general, it actually passes for real Christianity. Dating a dead spouse is what normally passes as true Christianity, and it's what Paul wants to tell us we're doing wrong. Because that's how, that's how bananas it is for those of us who are Christians to live under the law. It's just as crazy as hanging out with a dead spouse. Let's read the passage that Paul tells us this, and then 
I'll try to explain how this morbid little uh, illustration fits. You'll see it in the beginning. Click me one time there, said, then I should be good. Okay, Romans chapter 7, the first six verses read this way. Paul says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm talking, or I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. There's our passage. And as I mentioned, Paul's main point he wants to, to say something about being united to Christ in grace, but still dabbling in the law. But before he gets to that main point, he thinks an illustration might help. That's why I used the illustration I did at the beginning. Um, and Paul, what he's going to do here on, our, on the slide on the screen, he's going to state um, a principle, a legal principle that he knows everyone agrees with. And then in verses 2 and 3, he's going to give an, an example, an illustration of that principle at work. It goes like this. In verse 1, Paul states, as long as people live, they have to obey the law that they are under. You all agree with that? Uh, Paul's probably talking about the law of Moses, but what it, it works for civil law as well. Whatever law you are under, you, you have to obey the law. You're responsible to obey the law until you, what? until you die. When you die, you don't have to obey the law anymore, right? Um, and then to illustrate that passage, death changes things legally. To illustrate that passage, Paul's going to use marriage. He wouldn't have had to use marriage. There are other things he could have used. Property rights is a good one. We can own property in this life, but after we're dead legally, guess what? We don't own anything anymore because we're dead. Legally, that changes who owns that property. Death changes things for us legally. So he's going to use marriage, but it's only an example. And I make a big deal out of that because there are lots of people, some people I know and love very well, or know very well and love very much, who try to use verses 2 and 3 to bolster their uh, sort of theology about when it's biblically okay to be divorced and be remarried. And that's not at all what Paul's talking about here. Okay? Um, this is just an example. Uh, and to make sure I was right on that, I, I read seven um, commentaries for, for this sermon, which full disclosure is way more than I normally read. And, I did, and all seven um, either said nothing about the rules for when a divorce is biblically okay, or they made a point 
to say exactly what I just said. Don't try to build your rules about when divorce and remarriage are allowable based on this passage because it's not what Paul's talking about. Um, this is, Paul is talking about grace and law, and this is an example that divorce not being mentioned, when two people are married, they are legally bound to each other as long as they live. Right? Save others some mitigating circumstance, but as long as they're both alive, they're bound to one another. And Paul says it this way. You know, death changes things legally. And he says, I'll prove it to you. You know this. Let's say there is a, a, a woman you know who is very unhappily married and she would love to be married to another guy. If she just goes and marries another guy while she's still married to the first guy, none of us are going to be okay with that. But if the first husband dies, all of us are going to be okay with that, right? You know why? Because death changes things legally. It's a pretty simple concept. You get Paul's illustration? Okay, he wants you to get this. It's not, he's not trying to be confusing at all, uh, which is different for Paul, I think, sometimes. But once he's got us that far, he's ready to make his main point. And his main point comes in verse 4, and I word the main point this way. Stop dating the law. That's his main point. Stop dating the law. He says this way, So, my brothers or my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you could be joined to another, to the one who was raised from the dead to bear fruit to God. Paul points back up to that legal concept he's been telling, telling us about. Death changes things for legally. But then he adds one little twist. It's not that your spouse died. In this example, who died? Or in, this, in the reality here, who died? Paul says, you, if you are a Christian, if you have come to understand the reason Jesus went to the cross is because death requires sin and it's substitutionary atonement, he died in my place because of my sin and for me, instead of me. He had the wrath my sins deserve poured out on him. If you believe that, Paul says you are justified by faith, declared righteous by God, not because you're actually righteous, but because you believe in the one who is. If you've made it that far, then Paul says, brothers and sisters, you died and have now been released to your old, from your old marriage to the law. Whether you knew it or not, before you became a Christian, you were bound, you were joined, you were married to the law. And here's what that means. Your only hope of being pleasing in God's eyes was being good enough behaviorally, religiously, morally, in your behavior. And if, you've, if you read the first section of the, of the book of Romans, how'd that go for us? How, how, how able are we, any of us, to be good enough through our moral behavior or religious activities for God to look at us and say, yep, that one's righteous. Anybody, any of us good enough that way? No. That's why the law was a terrible spouse. The law has these expectations of perfection you can't deliver on. Now, the problem
is that we tend to think Christianity works like this. At some point in my life, I realize what I just described to you is true. I realize, holy smokes, according to God's standards of righteousness, I'm not righteous. I'm a sinner. I need help. I need rescued. I need saved. I need redeemed, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And then I learn about the cross and what Jesus did in my place. That's my only hope. And I place my faith in Jesus. I'm justified by faith, through, by grace, through faith. But then there's this pull in Christianity to believe that the Christian life is still just living under the law. I mean, he saves me, but I still live my life trudging away under the law. Paul says, you're dating the law under your new spouse's nose, or actually right in front of his face. So Paul says, you died to the law through the body of Christ. Paul's been answering this question for several weeks. If you've been here, why did you die to the law? And actually, in the Greek, God's, you, were, you were caused to die. It's like God killed you under the law, to the law. Why, but why? Were you, you died to the law, so you're free from that marriage. Have you died to the law and been set free from that marriage so that you can sin and sin and sin and sin and sin with impunity because yippee, we're not under the law anymore. Is that the purpose for which you die to the law? Paul would say, and he has said it over and over, may it never be. That's not why. According to this verse, why did God cause you to be dead to the law? First, so that you could be joined to another, to the one who was raised from the dead. You, were, you died to the law. You're released from that marriage to the law, not so that you could be free from God and all of his rules, but so that you could be joined to God. And notice what God called, who is the one who was raised from the dead? What's his name? Jesus. So according to this verse, you, are, you died to the law so that you could be married to Jesus. But Paul, he could have used his name, but he didn't. He just called him the one who was raised from the dead. Isn't that interesting? Why would Paul call Jesus the one who was raised from the dead in this passage, in this context, given what he's just been talking about? Because in the illustration he just used, how long are you bound to your spouse? Until what? Until what do you part? Until death. So our new spouse, Jesus, has been raised from the dead. Is he ever going to die again? Yes or no? No. So when will you be released from your union to him? Never. Never. If you've been united to him, are you ever going to die spiritually speaking? Never. Our union with Christ is never going to end. But again, there's always been this pull in the church to believe. Like, Jesus doesn't release me from the law. He's still up in heaven grading me based on how I do with my moral behavior. That, that's dating the law. What's it mean to date the law? The law says, 
my obedience makes me more in God's eyes. The law says obedience is what makes God like me, makes God proud of me, makes God accept me. God's opinion of me is based on my moral and or religious performance. Now again, that won't work. Paul's already told us that. And we have no more ability to make God like us through our behavior after we get saved than we have the ability to make God like us before we got saved. It's all the law. God's opinion of me is based on whose moral performance? Jesus's. I get his moral performance put on my account. Under grace, that's grace. That's the economy we live in. But there is, but, but, but we know, like, God's not okay with me sinning. God doesn't like it. He doesn't just permit me to sin. So how do we live a life that's free from the law, but not free to sin? Isn't that the question? Well, here's what Paul's going to do to help us understand that. Here's his main point. You're dead to the law. Stop dating the law. Stop hanging out with the law. It was a terrible spouse. You couldn't meet his or her expectations, however you want to uh, word it. And, and you are, you're dead to that. You've been united to Christ. And I'm going to keep referring to this. Here's the purpose for which we were united to Christ. To bear fruit to God. The law will not help us bear fruit to God. Paul's going to tell us in a minute, the law bears fruit unto death, always. So how do we live in this life of grace where we don't date the law, but we don't just go crazy sinning and thinking that's okay? We just have two verses left. And in those two verses, Paul is going to compare and contrast um, our old relationship, our old marriage to the law, and our new marriage to Christ. All right, so here was our life under the law. Verse 5, Paul says, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful desires aroused by the law were active in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. The law, me living life under the law, always bears fruit for death, no matter how good at it I am. Keep that in mind. All right. Paul says, for when we were in the flesh, I got to stop and define that underlined part right there, because the word flesh is a word, and because it's a word, it can mean different things in different contexts. This is not a biblical concept. This is a language concept. Uh, in English, the word record is the same word spelled the same way, and it means widely different, wildly different things in different contexts. A record, if you're of a certain age, is a round black disc about this size, right? With grooves on it to play music, right? That's a record. Um, whoever at the school that long jumped the farthest in track has the school record. Is that anything like a, a black vinyl disc? No. Our treasure here at church, her name's Joni. She keeps financial records. 
Are any of those three things like alike at all, really? No, okay? Flesh is kind of the same way. Paul uses the word flesh different ways. And in the Greek, it's just the word that should be translated flesh. It can mean like flesh, like my body, physically. It can mean the physical, uh, or excuse me, uh, it can mean the sinful cravings in me. And it can mean just my natural state. And that last one, I couldn't be more convinced is what Paul means here. And I point that out. If you read the most popular NIV translation, the 1984 NIV, I'm not telling you to throw your Bible away. I'm just telling you to make a note because they try to help you understand the word flesh. And I'm pretty sure they get it wrong. And they know they got it wrong. I'll tell you why in a minute. They say something like, uh, while we were controlled by our sinful desires. They're taking the word flesh and, and, and helping you understand that it means sinful desires. But Paul says sinful desires right after that. Uh, and he's not restating what he means. In the new version of the NIV that came out in 2010 or 11, something like that, they went back to just saying the flesh. That's why I think they realized they made a mistake there. Here's why this is important. Paul is not saying, back when you were a dirty sinner. Paul's saying, back where you were, when you were in your natural state, married to the law. And everything you did when you were in your natural state under the law was not sinful. But it still bore fruit to death. Our natural state under the law, basically here's what it is. In my flesh, in my, I live my life based in the, in the flesh based on what I desire and want to do, whether I know it or not. Sometimes, you know what I desire under the law in my flesh? I desire to be good. I desire to be moral. I desire to be good enough that by gum, I'm going to make God proud of me today based on how that's living in the flesh. By my own willpower, my own self-discipline, I'm going to be good this time. And Paul says, in your natural state, when you were trying your best and you're under your power to be good, the sinful desires in your body were aroused by the law and became active and bore fruit for death. That's why I say, always, 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 when you live by law, the harvest you're going to reap is a harvest of death. Now I want to finally explain why that is true. Because doesn't it seem like, well, when I'm good, things should be good. But when I sin, things will be bad. It's not the way this works. When you live your life based on your own willpower to make God proud of you by your behavior, the harvest is always death. Here's why. This can happen in different ways for different people. Scenario number one. Uh, person number one. They live according to the flesh and they are just controlled by their like lowest desires. I, this is a person, I live my life based on whatever feels good at the time and, you know, and whatever sort of moral failure might feel good to me at the time, that's what I'm going to do. Very easy to see that um, sort of living that lifestyle that will uh, result in death, Right? Here's how the law, Paul says, can arouse that sort of sin. Every single one of us have different levels of a little something called rebellion in our hearts. 
Here's what rebellion is. It is that response. You can probably think of a person, if, if they tell you something you ought to do, naturally, you just kind of go, I do not want to do that. Your heart goes, I don't want to do that because that person told me to do that. That's rebellion. We all have that. Some of us have it more than others. But we all have that. The law, this is a striking thing for Paul to say, that the law can arouse our sinful desires. One way the law can do that is the law says, I can read, pick your own pet sin here. The law can say, do not do blank. The law can arouse the sinful desires in me to go, man, I wonder what's so great about blank that God has to tell me not to do this. It can't be so bad to do blank. I mean, look how many people are doing blank. It's probably not that big of a deal for me to do blank in this situation. The consequences probably won't be that bad if I do blank. And besides, nobody can tell me I can't do blank. Right? And the law has aroused sinful desires in me. All right, that's scenario number one. But now let me give you another one. And that, very easy to see, that bears fruit to death. But now I'm going to give you another scenario. What if, let's say, you are more the kind of person who you heard and understood you were not to do blank, and you didn't do blank. You were obedient. Everybody else was running around doing blank, and you stayed home. Still, that's great. Obedience is still is, is good. I don't know if you know that, but... But still, if you did that in your own self-discipline and willpower, in your flesh, Paul says your sinful desires are going to be aroused by the law, become active in your body, and bear fruit for death. How can my, even my obedience, if done in the law, arouse my sinful desires and result in death? death? Here's how. Before long, I start to look at those people out there doing blank, I never did blank. You know what that makes me? Better. More. I mean, I know I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I'm better than that dude. In that area. And that's got to be good for something. That's got to mean something, right? And before long... What is aroused by the law in my body are things like pride, which, come on, it doesn't seem so bad when compared to blank. Except for pride was enough to get Satan kicked out of heaven for all of eternity. And pride is an abomination to the Lord. He hates pride as much as he hates blank. And what I'm describing here if I'm able to be obedient in my self-discipline and my willpower in my flesh, I'm describing self-righteousness. It's a righteousness. Hey, obedience is righteousness, but it's a righteousness I achieved all by myself. And that's very dangerous. And it always results in death. You know how that bears fruit for death? Somebody remind me, I've only said this 964 weeks in a row. 
Death in the Bible is not an annihilation of one thing, but death is a separation of two things. When I obtain righteousness all by myself, separation begins to happen where God does not want separation to happen. There, there are ways a Christian is supposed to be separate from the world. Different sermon for a different day. But in my self-righteousness, I will start to draw lines between me and those people who sin in different ways than I sin that God does not want drawn. Think of the Gospels. Read the Gospels. I highly recommend them. They're wonderful books. If you've read the Gospels, who are the kind of people that Jesus is consistently the most angry with? Is it the tax collectors and sinners that are always stuck in moral failure and doing the terrible things? They're kind of the, the, the category one sinner that I talked about a minute. Is that who Jesus is the most angry with in the Gospels? No. You know who he's always the most angry with? The people who think they are better than the tax collectors and sinners because of the righteousness they have achieved by themselves. I don't do that stuff the tax collectors and sinners do, and that should count for something, and God likes me better than he likes them. And Jesus says, disgusting. To Jesus, the difference between me and the tax collector and sinner is it's, it's not statistically significant. I am always closer to those people than I am like that per, to, to that person, to Jesus. And that pride and that self-righteousness that we obtain on our own by being good begins to separate me from other people in my heart in a way that Jesus finds repugnant and disgusting. If you read Paul, it's who he was most angry at also. Last thing. My, well, I'll just back up one. Verse four. Why have I been united to Christ? The very end of this verse, last phrase. I, was, I died to the law, been united to Christ to bear fruit to God. In our other sneaky, insidious example where the law wages war on me and arouses me to sin, sins like pride and self-righteousness, that stuff one reason it bears fruit for death is it doesn't bear fruit to God. Guess who it bears fruit for? Me or to me. Because in some ways, we're all victim of this. We want a righteous, we want righteousness. We just want it to be ours. We want to be recognized for what we've done and what we don't do and how much better we are than those folks that's not bearing fruit to God. And Paul just told us the reason you were joined to Christ is to bear fruit to God. And when my pride and my self-righteousness, the, the best fruit it can bear is fruit for me so that other people think I'm what I want them to think. I want people to drive by our house and go, oh man, that guy, that family, if only we could be like them, they're so whole, yeah. That is fruit to me. And it's death. Because what happens? We have to then live. We're dating the law. We're living in law. A legalistic environment always comes. 
And what happens is, I cannot admit I'm wrong. I cannot admit my sin. You know why? Because as soon as I admit my sin, the house of cards falls. I'm not what I want. I'm not righteous by myself. Consequently, what are the, what are the biblical ways to deal with sin in my life? What am I supposed to do with my sin? Confess and repent. See, when, I, when I'm dating the law, when I'm keeping score of my life based on my morality, I'm always compared to other people and it keeps me from confessing my sin because when I, can, when I admit my sin, I'm, I'm going against my, my goal, which whether I know it or not is self-righteousness. And so in this, in this uh, environment of legalism, I can't do what I actually need to do with my sin which is confess it. So here's what happens. Somebody comes to me and they tell me about my sin. You know what I do? I tell them 15 of theirs so that they learn, don't come at me with that stuff. You don't come at me with my sin because you're going to get a whole bunch more thrown at you because I can't, I got to stay in this house of cards I've built. Now, we're going to compare that to our last verse. Paul says again, I love these two words. Maybe my favorite two words in the Bible, Paul uses them all the time. But now. But now we don't have to live life under the law. But now we've been released from the law. Released from the law. uh, Why? So that we can sin and sin and sin because yippee, we don't have to obey any rules anymore. May it never be. We've been released from the law because we have died to what controlled us. Sometimes when you're reading Paul, you might think, man, why doesn't he just explain, give us some examples about what controlled us? It's different for all of us. Some of us were this kind of person over here, and what used to control me is addiction and pornography and drunkenness and drugs and all these things, right? But some of us are these people over here, and what controlled me is my own self-righteousness and goodness and morality and the opinions of other people. Paul says, whatever it is, we've been released from that. And you have to decide. You have to know what God has released you from that you are still dating. And why did he release us from those things? So that we may, what's this word right here? So that we may serve in the new life of the Spirit and not under the old written code. See, when I served the old written code, whether I know it or not, I was trying to bear fruit for whom? For me. I was trying to serve me, whether by being good enough to get to heaven when I die or being good enough and hiding the rest of my sin and keeping my sin secret and you can't tell me, making myself seem like I have this righteousness the law tells me I really don't have. Right? But now we've been released from the law so that we may serve in the new life of the Spirit. You know, the law cannot make us good. Paul couldn't be clearer. Paul says the law makes sin worse, not better. It's not the law's fault, it's ours. Come back next week and I'll tell you about that. 
the law, it can, it can, if we're really good, it can keep us from sinning some sins, but it cannot motivate goodness. It can't make us bear fruit to God. It can only help me bear fruit to me, which God finds disgusting and repugnant. But I've been released from the law so that I can serve Christ, serve others in his name. Here's how I bear fruit to God. Some of it might be being released from stuff I need to be released from. It's hard. But God can release you from sins you are enslaved to. He can. Confession and repentance. Short words, long process. God can release us from our self-righteousness. And then here's what happens. He can put me to work to serve in the new life of the Spirit. The Spirit can make me. What does the Spirit do? What does the, what does the Spirit do for the Christian? It produces fruit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? This, see, grace can make me more loving more full of joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Did I forget one? That's what the Spirit can do. And when I'm full of those things, now I see those people as people who I actually would love to help walk in the Spirit. You know, when, I, when I'm dating the law, when I live under the law, I don't really want those people to be better. You know why? Because I keep score morally and it makes me feel better to feel better. I need people who are an abysmal failure. That's why I'm always pointing out other people's failures. It makes me feel better about me. But when I, when I serve in the Spirit, grace reminds me God still loves me. <laughs> and those people are way closer to being this moral than I am close to being that moral. So I can serve them and love them and listen to them and help them come to know this life of grace that comes through Jesus Christ. And that is bearing fruit toward God. And God always gets the credit because he's the one that made me somebody who no longer felt better than those folks, but felt like, like listening and loving on those folks. That's bearing fruit. And then, one other thing that's very important. When I've been released from the law, I no longer keep score. I no longer keep my moral scorecard of how I never, I don't grade myself anymore by how I'm doing under the law. That always results in death. You've done this a million times, most of you. I'm going to be good this time. I'm not going to blow it this time. And I'm going to make God proud of me this day. And then what happens? You blow it again. And how do you feel? You know how you feel? You feel like death. You feel separated from God. You feel like there's no way God could love me. You know why you feel that? Because I don't even love me. Because I grade myself by the law. But under grace, guess what? I feel separated from God. God could never love me when I grade myself by the law. You told me a minute ago, how does God grade me? If this, is a, if this life is a course, I already have my final grade before I've taken any of the, all the tests. 
I get an A plus 100% for this life because I'll be graded on Christ's life, not mine. God will always grade me that way. So when I sin, does God like it? No. Does it separate me from him? No. He already knows. I don't have to pretend he didn't see it. I don't have to stay away from him because he didn't love me. I can go right up, climb on his lap and say, God, you saw what I did. And I confess that to him. And what I'm describing under grace is, tell me again, what is death in the Bible? Death is a separation. The law separates because it always shows me my sin and what a failure I am. Grace does not allow me to be separated even by my sin. It's the lack of separation, which is life. Jesus defined eternal life. What is it? Jesus said, he wanted people to have eternal life. And he told his dad, his daddy, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Eternal life is simply being in union with Jesus Christ and his father. And we have that right now in Christ. That even our sin can't separate us from. God didn't like it when we sin. It's not bearing fruit to God. We have been set free from the law to bear fruit to God. But to bear fruit to God, we have to stop dating the law. Bearing myself and how I do morally to those people and how they do morally and feeling better or worse based on that scorecard. I died to that. I'm released from that. I'm not sleeping with that old spouse anymore. I couldn't make her happy one day. And now I'm united to a new spouse who loves me and accepts me unconditionally because I get his righteousness on me. And now he has made me, as Paul said elsewhere, adequate to serve in this new covenant. Hope you understand that a little better. Stop dating the law. Live in grace. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Um, Thank you for personally for the chance to open this and study these passages that uh, I can freely admit I did not always understand these things. Uh, So thank you for the time to sit and study and see what it is you really have to say for us. And now God, if you have helped us understand more how we date the law, convict us where we need convicted, challenge us where we need challenged, change us where we need changed. But we don't want to date the law that we died to. We want to live in grace, serve you, and bear fruit to God because of what you have done for us through Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.